we need to practice. Okay, we need to practice using the words. And we need to recognize that when someone uses the word suicide, most of the time, it's not really directly about death. It's about distress and despair. And so what we need to focus on is that we need to be thankful that our clients tell us that they're feeling suicidal. Because if they don't tell us and we don't know, we cannot help. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with John Summers Flanagan, a professor of counselor education at the University of Montana. John primarily specializes in working with children, parents, and families. He's the author of over 100 professional publications and nine books, written with his wife, Vita. You can learn more about John at johnsummersflanagan.com. John, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? How am I really right now? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I just got done doing a different presentation. And so I'm still on a little bit of a high. And so how about you, Fran? How are you? I'm doing okay. Just like you, I just finished another presentation, except I'm not on that high. I'm on that anxiety level because it was my very <laughs> first one. So, wow. but I'm excited and doing well. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So first, let's talk about the textbook that you co-authored with your wife, Clinical Interviewing. In this book, you discuss the importance of establishing trust in a therapeutic relationship during the initial stage of therapy. Tell us more about the book and the importance of that relationship. Well, you know, the book is titled Clinical Interviewing. And if you think about it, the initial clinical interview is sort of the headwaters from which all of counseling and psychotherapy flows. And so the clinical interview is really part therapy and part assessment uh, because we're trying to do both during that first contact. And it is so essential. And you used, the, you used great words. Um, the words trust and therapeutic relationship are really central to what we wanna do at the beginning of our time with clients or patients. Uh, and so I, I might use slightly different terminology in that um, to add to what you said, the, this idea called the working alliance. I mean, really, if we want to work with people effectively, um, we need them to be full participants. And so the working alliance is sort of this term that we use to describe in, in some ways the collaboration that needs to take place in order for counseling and psychotherapy to be effective. And so, yeah, the clinical interview is the beginning of that. Trust, therapeutic relationship, working alliance, rapport, and, and just really kind of in some ways enjoying being with one another. All that helps the process be more effective. That is so true. Without that trust, without that building rapport, you can't really get a close connection, especially when someone is struggling and they're afraid to open up, they're afraid to reach out. And now suddenly they're in a therapy session with someone. And how do they know that they can feel comfortable to open up? They've probably never opened up before. It might be the first time. And that can feel really overwhelming. But within that beginning stage of therapy, the initial clinical interview can take many forms. There's the mental status exam the um, suicide assessment, and the diagnostic interviewing. 
So how does building rapport and establishing trust differ among these various interviews? You know, it, it differs and it's also very similar or stays the same sometimes. So one of the most important things to start is to do a thing that has been called over the years, role induction. And really what that term means is that if you and I are working together and we're gonna do a mental status exam, I need to be explicit with you about the purpose of what we're doing and, and maybe give you a little information, a little preview of, and these are the kinds of things that we'll be doing. Um, all of that is just a way to naturally set the stage so that you're ready, so that your expectations match my expectations. Now, depending on the kind of interview, the role induction is gonna sound different. So like when I work with parents, um, I have this little shtick, you know, the way that I wanna say it is to say something like, so Fran, um, I'm so honored and happy to be able to meet with you. And I hope that our time together can be really good. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the process and how it goes. Probably for the first half of our meeting, I will mostly listen and I won't say a whole lot. I'll just ask questions. I won't share a lot of ideas, but around halfway through, I will begin to talk a little bit more and I might share some ideas about parenting. But what I, what I want you to know is that if I'm not sharing enough um, and you want me to talk more, just tell me. And if I'm talking too much, tell me that too. And, you know, I can be quiet. <laughs> so so it's, it's really a way to let people know this is what's going to happen. And I want to partner with you in the process. Because really, in the end, I want you to be happy with your experience in counseling. The structure is key. Letting them know that this is the goal. This is the purpose. This is what we're going to do. But now let's collaborate and do it together because therapy can't be one-sided. No session can be just the counselor, the therapist talking, or just the patient talking. It's that collaboration where magic happens, where people actually get that support and they learn more. Mm -hmm. So, but what happens when you have unwilling clients? Maybe they're court ordered, or maybe they're just required to attend therapy, but they genuinely don't want to be there. How do you build that relationship? You know, I learned a lot about the need for collaboration and how it can't be one way when I was working a lot with teenagers and many of the teenagers were actually referred by the courts. Um, and they taught me really quickly that even though in my mind, I thought, well, I've got a PhD. I mean, and I'm older than they are. I mean, why wouldn't they just sit and listen to all the really important wise things I have to say. And of course, very quickly, they let me know, nah, <laughs> not so much. They didn't really care about that, right? But they did care about the connection. I remember one boy coming in and saying, I want to let you know, I punched my last therapist. Um, wow. Well, and I, you know, at that point in my career, I, I had gotten used to people especially teenagers being kind of provocative and maybe not voluntary. So I said to him, I said, I am so glad. Thank you so much for telling me that you punched your, your last therapist because I would never want to be the kind of therapist that would make you want to punch me. That's just not the way I want to work. And so if I ever say anything to you that makes you feel like you want to hit me, 
I hope you'll just tell me because I would just want to stop doing that. Um, and I remember him saying to me, you know, hmm, he, he looked at me and he said, you're weird. And I, I thought, well, that's a compliment because really what he was saying to me, he was saying my last therapist was so bad that I punched him. And so he's letting me know, don't be a bad therapist. And fortunately, the bar was really low, right? Um, so there are a bunch of different ways that we can try to make that connection with people who are mandated or involuntary. Another thing to say is, um, you know, we both know you have to be here, uh, but we don't have to have a bad time. I mean, just because we're both required to be here doesn't mean we have to have a bad time together. And so I'd actually like to have a pretty good time, an interesting time. And so, it, and, and that will oftentimes get people to be more cooperative. And then the last thing that uh, I have found, again, with parents, but, um, and dads in particular, who often don't wanna be talking to a shrink, to just find a common goal and to find what they're really interested in. Um, and I remember one dad that I, you know, he said, I don't wanna be here. This is a stupid ass thing, you know? And, and I said to him, well, you know, I know that the judge made you come here um, so that you didn't have to have supervised visits with your daughter. And so I just wanna tell you, you must really love your daughter to be willing to come and meet with me. And it was like, he was, completely taken aback and like, oh, yeah, I do really love my daughter. That is why I'm here. Uh, and so finding a common interest, a common goal. Finally, I had one last story is, you know, with working with teenagers, oftentimes their main goal is to stop counseling. And so I would, I had this little technique I used called termination as motivation. And I would say, you know, we're supposed to do anger management. And, you know, the the faster we can do it, the quicker we can be done. Uh, so what do you think we should do to make this go fast? You seem like a pretty smart young man or young woman or person. So how can we work together and get this done quickly? And so finding some common goals, interests, and letting people know that you want to work with them in a constructive way, I think really helps. The common goals, I really, really love. And I loved that example when the teenager came, came in and said, I punched my last therapist. And yeah. I think a lot of people would have been taken aback and didn't know how to respond, may have felt extremely uncomfortable. But right away, you reassured the teenager that you were going to be there and that you didn't want to put him in a situation where he felt like he wanted to punch his therapist again. You genuinely wanted to help him. And I think that it's so powerful when you have that connection with your therapist, when you feel like you're not being forced to be there, that they don't genuinely care that you're just a number or a patient. You're a person that they genuinely want to help. That is so important. That is the key. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there are different ways to sort of establish that. Sometimes directly saying it, right? If I were just to say at the beginning with someone, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm going to trust you or I will always respect you or I will accept everything you say with no judgment. If you just say that, that's super corny. And it's also wrong because, you know, we can't help but be judgmental once in a while. I think more important is for us to act in ways that are consistent with our valuing the perspective of the client or the patient. Uh, and so we can't really say it all the time. But once in a while, 
our clients will give us openings, like the boy who said he punched his last counselor. It was just sort of an opening for me to say, I never want you to feel that bad with me. If you feel that bad with me, I've done something wrong. Uh, so, yeah. That is incredible. And I think especially the beginning of therapy is very nerve wracking. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what the therapist is going to think of you. It's their fear of being diagnosed of maybe something's wrong with me in a label. The fear of what if other people find out I'm here, there is just so much that makes that first session overwhelming. But from a client's perspective, if you could offer them one piece of advice before entering that clinical interview, what would you say? Well, you know, to start with, I'd say uh, you get to evaluate your your therapist. And so you should be um, trying to figure out, is this the kind of person I can work with? And maybe you can do that a little bit by looking at the person's website, or maybe you can do that a little bit with a phone call. Um, But really, you are, you deserve a good counselor. (laughs) And so be aware of that. And then once you get a sense of whether you can trust the person, um, then be yourself. Be as much of yourself as you can be. Be as open and authentic as you can be. Even when you have thoughts that are not appropriate or thoughts you know, that maybe you think, oh, my counselor is going to think I'm a bad person if I share that. Go ahead. Because we cannot help people unless we know them. And so it's your job to be yourself with us, you know, just be who you are. And then that will help us establish rapport, have that working alliance, develop mutual trust for one another. Uh, But before you do that, you know, check the person out, make sure they're okay. evaluating the therapist. That is so important. And a lot of times we feel like we're the only ones being evaluated and that if we find a therapist and we don't connect with them, then that's it. Therapy doesn't work for us, but that's not true. Sometimes you don't connect with someone and that's okay. Just like in relationships, you try a few people out before you find the person that you may or may not want to spend your life with. You have to go into therapy with that same open mindset. It's not just a one size fits all everyone's different. And then that part about being yourself. One of the most important things that I think we don't realize when it comes to our mental health is we expect our therapist and our counselors to be able to completely help us and heal us. But if we don't know what we're feeling and we can't advocate for ourselves and tell them what we're feeling or what we're experiencing, they're not inside our minds. They can't help us. They can't heal us. If you have to be able to share. You have to be willing to share. If you're not willing to share, it's not going to work. And sometimes what people do, clients, in order to be careful and test the trust is that they might share something a little smaller, a little safer to start with. In some ways, kind of testing the counselor or the therapist out to say, oh, I wonder how the counselor will respond to this smaller issue before I get to the bigger issues. And that's perfectly reasonable too, because you shouldn't be expected 
as a vulnerable person, a vulnerable client, to suddenly be completely yourself. So you may need to take a step in that direction, then really check out to see how the counselor responds. I think that's a very good way to move forward. And like you, you're saying, it, it has to be a collaboration. We cannot read our clients' minds. And so please tell us what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing in your life, and maybe take it slowly, build that trust over time. And hopefully then you have a collaborative relationship and you can work well together. Exactly. It's completely okay to test the waters. Most of us do it, but Mm -hmm. let's tune in on suicide assessment. You've done a lot of work focused on how to effectively and collaboratively assess and intervene with suicidal clients at different phases in life. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how suicide assessment may differ among different types of patients? Yeah, it it does differ. And like the other question that you asked earlier, it's also quite similar, right? Um, One way it differs is when you're working with younger children, you might use different language. Um, I might say, have you had thoughts about hurting yourself, right? It's not unusual for kids to have thoughts about hurting themselves. I wonder if you've had some thoughts about hurting yourself, right? And make it seem or feel more normal, ask that question. But with an older person, teenager for sure, and older, I am just gonna use the word suicide and I'm gonna use the words kill yourself or something like that because I wanna be really clear that that's what I mean. Um, One of the things that I like to do in order to get the conversation started, and this is with adults and teenagers mostly, is to do a rating scale with them and to say, okay, is it okay with you, Fran, if I ask you some questions about your mood? And almost everybody says, yes, of course. And I'll say, well, on a scale of zero to 10, zero is you are just going to kill yourself. And 10 is you're high, you're up, you're feeling really good and positive in your life. Where are you right now? And so I would ask that. And then you might say six. And I would say, so what's happening right now to make you feel like you're a six? And then that gives me a sense of what's going on in your life right now. And then I might say, well, in the last month, what's the lowest rating you'd give yourself? And you might say two. And I'd say, ah, what was happening when you were a two? I have unbelievably, I've done this with hundreds of people. They always tell me, oh, well, I broke up with my, uh, you know, my romantic partner or whatever. You know, they tell me exactly what was going on to make them a two or a zero or sometimes Teenagers will say, I'm, I was a negative 100, right? Even though it's only zero to 10, right? They'll say they're making a point that there was, they were really, really hurting. Um, and then at the end, I'm, I'm going to ask them, well, how about the last two months? What's the highest you've been on that scale? And just in getting the word suicide out there in the scale, later on, I can say, and of course, I ask everyone, Fran, I ask everyone because it's not unusual. Have you had any thoughts about suicide? Um, And so I want to weave that in as well, but it's a way to get those words out there and to be able to talk about it. Now with littler kids, uh, I had a counselor supervisor or supervisee who told me, well, we use a different scale. We don't use numbers. Um, I was working with a 12 year old boy and uh, yoga was suicide and pizza was the best he could feel. And we just used these words to represent how he was feeling. And so kind of whatever you can use to create with your clients 
some communication back and forth about how the client is doing can be really useful. Sounds like, again, with suicide assessment, it's about connecting with the client and finding words that they can understand and feel comfortable using. Mm -hmm. Like you said, with younger kids using yoga and pizza, that's probably easier for them to express and to process and to talk about versus zero to 10 suicide feeling super positive and amazing. That's a lot harder to process because how do you know where you are? Sometimes numbers can be very overwhelming in figuring out that scale. But when you can attach it to something else that seems more almost tangible, it's easier to process and to have an understanding. But when conducting a suicide assessment, it's often really uncomfortable to ask a person if they want to kill themselves or if they have plans to end their lives. Personally, when I volunteer with the crisis text line, The first thing that really like freaked me out was like, I have to say this to someone. I have to ask them, is that going to make them uncomfortable? And it's so amazing to hear how many people will say, yeah, I actually am. And right now I'm feeling really low. And that's why I reached out. And the word suicide doesn't make me not want to answer. But talking about it gives it direct because if it's just, do you want to hurt yourself? that could be taken as self-harm versus suicide and not knowing that level. So how do you help your students to overcome that barrier so that they feel comfortable to assess the patient? That's a great question. Uh, What I tell them is that we need to practice. Okay, we need to practice using the words and we need to recognize that when someone uses the word suicide, most of the time, it's not really directly about death. It's about distress and despair. And so what we need to focus on is that we need to be thankful that our clients tell us that they're feeling suicidal. Because if they don't tell us and we don't know, we cannot help. And then the other really cool thing about my students is they've all gotten into this profession because they want to help people. And so then I'll say, why did you get into this profession? Well, we wanna, what better opportunity is there? It's an unparalleled opportunity to actually work with someone who is suicidal and to help them feel better. That's amazing, it's incredible. We need to welcome that and embrace that. We need to practice for it, obviously. And then once it happens, we need to actually be thankful and sometimes even say to our client, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I really appreciate you being open and honest about your true thoughts of feeling suicidal. Uh, Some people aren't even honest about it. And I really, really value your honesty. So. Exactly. Reaffirming that safe place is so important and knowing that that's exactly what you're trying to do. You want to help people. And the best way to help someone is to find out. A lot of times when we go to therapy, we tend to be so reactive. We wait till that last minute. We wait until we're having suicidal thoughts. We tend not to go when things are great. So in that moment, asking somebody, are you feeling suicidal? Can be a life-changing question especially when they answer honestly, because now they have the opportunity 
to, for the first time, express what they're feeling and to open up. Because again, there's that stigma. You can't really open up to your friends or to your family members. You're afraid that they're going to judge you. Or a lot of times they invalidate you because they don't know the right way to respond because we don't teach them. There's no guide. So mm-hmm. having that opportunity to ask that question, get asked that question and respond is so powerful. Absolutely. So there is this idea that suicide assessment is solely the question, do you want to kill yourself? But are there any additional aspects of that assessment and other important questions to discuss? So the first thing is, uh, and I've said this a couple of times already, but uh, the, the question, do you want to kill yourself or have you had thoughts about suicide? Those are important questions. And of course, we always need to ask directly about that. But I love the fact that you have normalize in the title of what we're doing right now, because I have, I learned this from my, one of my supervisors back in the 1980s. And she said, make it easier for people to share that they're feeling suicidal. And we do that by using a normalizing statement. And if I'm working with a 15 year old, I might say, you know, one of the things that's true, and I've read about this and the facts support it, is that somewhere between 50 and 80% of high school students at some point when they're in high school have thoughts about suicide and feel troubled by those thoughts. And so I'm wondering if that's the case for you, right? So I'm, I'm, making, I'm making sure that the teenager knows that I know that it's not unusual. I need to have in my mind the whole belief that thoughts of suicide, again, are about distress and that they're a natural thing for people to think about when they're distressed. It's not a sign of psychopathology. It's not a sign of a mental disorder, that instead it's a sign that somebody is living in a hard, hard situation and feeling desperate. and and really wants to feel better because suicide is a thought about making the pain go away. Um, So so I love the fact that you have normalized in the title of what you do. Other questions that are really important in the context of suicide assessment. David Jobes, the author of the inventor or the originator of the CAMS approach, collaborative assessment and management of suicide. He has one question called the one thing question, and it goes like this. So, Fran, what's the one thing that if it changed in your life, you would no longer be suicidal? Great question, right? What's that one thing that if it changed, you'd no longer be suicidal? And we need to ask, and usually we do ask about all those standard things like, uh, how often have you had thoughts about suicide? How, how frequent are they? How intense are they? How long do they last? But then there's the final question in a sequence there that sometimes people forget. And that is, so, so Fran, what happens when the suicidal thoughts go away? What's usually happening in your life when the th- suicidal thoughts go away? So those are a couple of questions where we're really kind of focusing on a positive spin you know, Job's question, it's fabulous. What one thing would make it so you're no longer suicidal? And the other question, what's going on when the suicidal thoughts go away? 
those are very powerful questions. And it gives you this feeling of hope because when you can answer that question, you now realize you have a reason to live, that it's going to be okay, that it can get better. I think a lot of times when we're experiencing suicidal thoughts, in that moment, you feel hopeless. Like nothing's ever going to get better. Nothing's ever going to change. It's never going to be okay. The pain is never going to go away. But having that moment of, well, if this changed, then I guess I wouldn't be feeling this way. That level of hope is just so important. And when there's hope, there's something inside you that's going to keep holding on. So is there any advice you can offer to someone who wants to maybe assess a loved one? They see that a loved one is struggling. They think they might be in danger and in need of support. How could they assess so they could figure out what to do? I think the first thing is is to pay attention, right? We need to be in community, in family, and concerned about people we care about. And so to pay attention to if someone seems a little out of sorts, seems a little down, seems a little bit distressed or disturbed, right? And, and not to take it upon ourselves to constantly be checking in, but to notice if it seems like something's going on. And then to, of course, ask the question and ask it directly. And again, I like to use that normalizing statement, like it's not unusual. I wonder if you've had some, any thoughts about um, hurting yourself or killing yourself. Sometimes it's nice to use both of those words. Um, and then really the next most important, maybe of all rule, is to show empathy. You know, show empathy and and to not try to do a thing that some people refer to as toxic positivity to not say well Fran just just cheer up you've got a lot of really important things to live for you know you're young you're smart you got your own podcast I mean you have a lot of reasons to live no all those things might be true but we need to stop ourselves from being, you know, if we try to say that from the outside in, almost always you get resistance because people don't feel understood and they don't, they feel like their sad, bad, miserable feelings are being minimized and dismissed, right? So that is a huge and very important thing. And then of course, if you want to be of help, we know that distress increases suicidality and so you should be thinking well what are some things that i might be able to do or that we might be able to do that would help you feel a little less pain or a little less sadness or a little less whatever it is and you know what your friends will often say family members nothing i've tried everything nothing helps you know right because like you said just a few minutes ago hope and its absence hopelessness it's a big contributor to suicide and suicidality. Exactly. So one of the things that I sometimes just encourage people to do is to, is to really sit with your friend or your family member within, in the hopelessness and, and maybe even start at the bottom and just say, so, hey, Fran, what's the worst and dumbest and stupidest idea anyone has ever given you about, you know, feeling better or, you know. And, and not surprisingly, people say, oh, I hated it. You know, people told me exercise. I hate exercise. I hate sweating. It just made me sore. I, you know, 
sure, maybe it's good for other people. It's not good for me. I hated it. So I then might say as a friend, well, I will not suggest exercise. <laughs> you know, what was something else that was pretty bad that you just really hated? And then the person might say, well, medications that, you know, I just didn't feel like myself. I just didn't feel like I was my real me. And, and of course, people will have different answers to the question of what really didn't work, right? But if we are able to start there, you kind of are building a little continuum up. And, but what was maybe a little less bad, you know, and you start to move up the continuum and then people recognize and realize, well, it's not like everything is exactly equal in terms of its badness. There's some things that are a little better but when people are in that, that mental state of suicidality, they often see everything as, uh, it's, not just, it's not black, white thinking, it's just like black, black thinking. Yeah. Everything is dark, everything feels bad, nothing, I don't think anything could help me. I think I've tried everything. Exactly. And when you're feeling that sense of hopelessness, it is so much easier to know what doesn't work. But when you know <laughs> what doesn't work, you're one step closer to finding out what does work. So working from backwards can be so helpful. And what you said about that toxic positivity, a lot of people don't realize that you may see so many beautiful reasons for someone to live. You might see all that potential and all that hope and all that, everything around them that's going to work out for them, but they can't see it in that moment. And by you telling them, well, you have so much to live for, you're now making them feel guilty for feeling the way they do feel mm -hmm. like they're feeling ungrateful for their life for all the things they have you can be the most grateful person in the world to, and desperately want to help the world and to live life to the fullest and still get these thoughts of suicide these thoughts of hopelessness of helplessness and that's okay Gratitude and hopelessness can coexist. And when we use that toxic positivity, we kind of draw that line and make people question themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a very, very important point that you brought up. But you also mentioned not overchecking in. So where do you think that line is for someone who wants to check in? Because right now the new trend is make sure you're checking in on your friends, check in on your loved ones, check in, check in, check in. But how much do you check in? How often? Where do you see that line? Yeah, this brings up some issues for me. Um, and so I'll just try to speak to them directly. The, the first thing is great. You're checking in. That's fantastic. How often should you check in? Well, check in with them on how often feels right. I mean, you know, I don't know what's right for somebody else. Uh, but if you're checking in, you might as well just check in on how often to check in. And if the person says, I don't really want to talk about it very often, you might say, oh, well, okay, well, I will probably still check in once in a while, but I hope you know, you got a green light to just let me know if you're upset or feeling suicidal anytime, just, just let me know, right? So you want to make sure that it, it goes both ways. It shouldn't just be on one person to check in, right? The, the person who's feeling suicidal has some responsibility to communicate it. And as long as you as a friend or family member have made the light green, I am interested in you and how you're feeling. Please talk to me whenever. Then I think that's really good. Now you should still check in once in a while, right? Because people who are feeling suicidal will not trust that. And pretty soon they'll think, well, 
you know, Fran hasn't checked in on me. She probably doesn't care anymore, right? So again, check in anyway. Don't put it all on the person who's feeling suicidal. But, but here's where the whole idea of you should check in a lot. Um, it, it starts to bother me because, you know, this is kind of a complicated issue, but, but basically the idea that we as friends and family should, should pick up on the warning signs or pick up on risk factors or pick up on protective factors and that we should somehow not miss the signs. What that, what that does is it makes people feel so terribly guilty if someone dies by suicide. And so I, I like to reassure everyone who's trying to help that even though people have ambitious statements like zero suicide and that, yes, we should tune in to whenever friends are feeling down and check in, right? But people who want to die by suicide can usually find a way to die by suicide. And usually they can find a way to hide the signs from us. And so I would hate to have teachers or parents or friends feel like I missed the signs or be told in advance, if you, you better check on all these signs, because the truth is, and this is a sad truth, People die by suicide. It's never been zero. And what's interesting is the research suggests that there are no good predictors of suicide in that the, uh, it, we still, the professionals using the best math in the world have concluded after looking at 50 years of research that we just are not very good at predicting suicide because it will happen sometimes when we least suspect it. So I wanna to try to relieve people of the big responsibility of other people's lives. On the other hand, you know, we wanna do everything we can, right? Yeah. Everything we can to check in, to be collaborative, to try to prevent death by suicide whenever possible. I'm really happy you brought that point up about not feeling guilty when you don't see the signs because people can hide the signs. And if they're not talking about it, no matter how much you check in, if they're still not being honest, it's not your fault. And that's something that I can personally relate to. When I lost my uncle to suicide, I took on so much guilt. I broke down every single day and I genuinely thought, how come I didn't see it? Because when I needed him to see it for me, he was there and he was able to talk to me and he understood, but I didn't realize how much he understood. And that created so much guilt and that guilt almost destroyed me. And I think that it's so important. So I'm really happy you brought that up to remember that check in as much as you want or as much as you can, make sure the person feels comfortable, give them that green light. But you can't take it all on. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story about your uncle and about the guilt that you felt. I think it's perfectly natural. A uh, number of years ago, I had a 16 year old boy I was working with in counseling die by suicide and I was devastated. You know I mean? I thought I had completely failed 
and I mean, I can feel the emotions come up even as I talk about it, right? And so I think it's really important for us to recognize how normal it is to feel guilty, how normal it is to hang on to the guilt, because obviously we would like to have been helpful if it had been possible. Yeah. Uh, I recently wrote an article in Psychotherapy Networker that was about that experience. Um, and I just think it's really important for people to read about others' experiences so that, you know, we all feel like we're in this together and we know we can't save every life and we know we'll obviously feel guilty if we can't. We'll come up short sometimes. Um, and yet we need to be able to have time and space to work through that as well. Exactly. So during the past two years with the pandemic, we have seen therapy switch from face-to-face only practice to telehealth. On one side, this expanded the accessibility of counseling, but on the other side, it created this level of isolation. Many people have discussed this feeling of disconnect due to the fact that therapy is conducted between a computer screen. And when you're looking at a screen, even when you see the other person, it doesn't always feel like that person is there and really listening. So as a counselor, how has this impacted building rapport and creating a connection with the client? I think you made a really good point when you said, you know, from a distance, it's hard to know how much is the person listening? How much is the person caring? How much is the person interested in me? And so from the position of a, of a counselor or a psychotherapist, what I need to do via Zoom or telehealth or telemental health is I need to be even more present and probably a little more active because I don't want you to get the sense that I've drifted away or that I'm checking my phone or that, that there's anything really interfering with the effort to make a deep connection with you. So that takes a little more energy and focus, I think, for counselors to do that through time and space, right, through the computer. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, it's, it's really not all bad in uh, one sense. Like, I can see your background. You know, we're talking. I can see your background. You can see my background. In some ways, I've entered into your home or your place of work and that I, I you know, I can feel some of that connection. And if you happen to become suicidal, um, I feel like, and as long as I've done a good job with informed consent, I've collected information about emergency numbers and all those kinds of things in advance, I might be able to say, well, is there someone there around you who's the closest person who you could reach out to now? And, And maybe there would even be a chance to have some suicide support person right there on camera too as long as it was okay, and we had consent for that. And so it can actually, in some ways, make things a little bit, you know, maybe help us be sensitive to things that we might not be sensitive to. Uh, But it's a challenge. And, And in some ways, I think that counselors have to do probably less hours of online counseling because of how much the good online counseling, how much it takes from us in terms of intensity. I love how you brought up the point of being able to see inside their home, like you're brought inside their home, because when you see someone's environment, it gives you another look into their lives. Mm -hmm. When you go into therapy and you're all dressed up and 
you're putting on your best face, it's very different than when you see their background and you see how they're living and how they're actually dressed and what they really look like. Mm -hmm. It's very different because with Zoom and telehealth, we've really seen that there's different levels to people that you wouldn't see without being entered into their home. Has that been any better in helping assess the client when you can actually see into their environment or is it about the same? Well, you know, I think it's, it's you know, there, there are pluses and minuses, right? It probably turns out about the same, but it's great. I mean, if I can see that you have a cat or a dog, right? Um, or I have a sense of your environment and I can use something from that to have a bigger picture of who you are, those are big benefits, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, we, uh, you know we, we lose something not being live and in person. Um, so, so there are things we lose, there are things we gain. Uh, I think we have to follow some of the same assessment principles and therapeutic principles we might need to turn up sort of the intensity a little bit in order to make it um, work as well. So as we continue to have telehealth therapy as an option, I feel like pre-pandemic, it wasn't really that big. I was personally doing telehealth therapy with my therapist way before the pandemic. So to me, this was normal. But to most people, they were like, is this a really a good option? A lot of people stopped therapy because they didn't know if they were going to like it. So as we continue to have this option for counseling, how would you advise someone who is seeking treatment to decide which option might be best for them? So right now, I mean, the good news with vaccinations and masking, uh, we often, I think, have the option of in-person or face-to-face live counseling, again, a little more than we did right after the shutdowns happened. So there's a little bit more chance to make a choice, right? Um, But one of the things that I think is important, the message I guess I would give is be open to the possibility that the Zoom experience or the telemental health experience might just be better than you think it is. And then if it's not, you can always try to choose to go back to -to face-to-face and hopefully that's available in your community. Uh, But yeah, I have, uh, you know, I'm able to do counseling with someone who's living in Europe. And that's pretty cool. Uh, And it's cool for that person. And it's cool for me to be able to make that connection over thousands of miles. It's an opportunity. I mean, uh, telemental health is an opportunity. And so I think my advice is for people, don't minimize it. Uh, Give it a chance. Life is a lot about experimentation. Experiment with it. See if, in fact, you might even like it better. You don't have to get dressed up and you don't have to go out of the house. You can sit on your favorite couch or a really comfortable place and talk. (laughs) What's better than that? I mean, that's pretty darn good. Exactly. It's all about giving it a chance because once you have an open mind, anything is possible. John, you have been absolutely incredible today. Thank you so much for joining me, for being vulnerable and opening up and sharing your own story and for all the amazing support and advice you've offered today. 
Thank you. And thank you again for having me on your show. I really appreciate it.